Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, really, is our focus this morning. There's an historian called Tom Holland, and he's written a book about the the growth and the spread and the impact of Christianity. Tom Holland isn't a Christian himself, and so that makes his book really interesting reading. He's actually very positive about the impact that Christianity has and how it has shaped the Western world and our values. But he starts off his book with a question. How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire came to exercise such a transforming and enduring influence on the world. How is it that from a world, the world's point of view, the execution of an obscure carpenter who was executed for treason, how on earth has that impacted our world so much? And Tom Holland goes on to answer that question by looking at really how that happened, the mechanics of how that happened, and how Christianity spread and how it shaped the values of our Western world. But there's another how, a deeper how, maybe a why in answer to that question. And I want us to to think about that. And we don't find it in Tom Holland's book, The Answer. We find it in the Gospels. They show us that this was no ordinary person, no simple carpenter, no obscure criminal. They show us the very nature and person of this carpenter, and that changes everything. And so we're starting back into our series in John's Gospel, and let's just remind ourselves who John was. He was one of the followers of Jesus, one of the disciples, perhaps the youngest of all the disciples. He lives, uh, he outlives all the others. Uh, He's writing this gospel sometime in the late 80s. So that's about 50 years after Jesus uh, died and rose and ascended into heaven. And John, as he writes, he'd been an eyewitness, but the other gospel writers have already written. And I'm convinced that John is very familiar with their writings. And so when he comes to write, he takes a different approach. He thinks about the things that aren't really included in the other gospels. He comes at things. He he doesn't just give the bare facts, but he gives us the benefit of his 50 years of thinking about what he saw and heard. He is much in his gospels, and his gospel that isn't in the other gospels. And he tells us his aim. His aim he sets out in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised rescuer, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in His name. He sets out a very clear purpose. He wants us to know who Jesus is so that we can have everlasting life. And he's, His gospel splits into two main parts. The first 12 chapters are really from chapter 2 to chapter 12. He sets out different signs. He doesn't call them miracles, but that's what they are. But they are signs or signposts pointing us to who Jesus is and to what Jesus is like. And again, he picks those carefully. And then the second half of the book is what some writers call the book of glory. It's Jesus moving towards the cross. And for John, the cross is not something shameful, which it was to all the ancient world. The cross for John had become something glorious, where we see the wondrous nature of God's love. It's where God's love is put on display. It is a, a fabulous place in John's mind, not because of the grottiness of the act that happened there, someone being put to death, but because of what God was doing there. And he wants us to think about that, especially in the second half of his book. And we come uh, to this section now, and I want us to remember that John, I think, is familiar with the three other accounts. He's conscious of what has been said by the other writers, and he tailors what he writes accordingly. And so as we come to the arrest of Jesus, John doesn't tell us about the agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. He doesn't tell us about the disciples sleeping. He doesn't tell us about Judas betraying Jesus with a, a kiss, with a greeting. He doesn't tell us about that. He doesn't tell us about the healing, Jesus' last miracle, so to speak, of the servant's ear. He doesn't tell us about the young man who fled, leaving his garment behind when he was grabbed at by the soldiers. He leaves all those things aside, and instead he focuses on four things that Jesus says that aren't recorded by any of the other gospel writers. In my mind's eye, I see John reading the other writers and going, yeah, but there, there's also those things he said, and they're etched on John's memory. And the other things were significant that the other writers got, but having got all those, John isn't just going to repeat it. He says there were, there were other things that happened that night that were significant, and he wants us to focus on them. Four things Jesus said. He said, who is it you want? He said, I am he. He said, let these men go. And he said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And these four things that Jesus says, John, who, who loves to see rich significance in events and in what Jesus said, records these because they give us four glimpses into the heart of Jesus Christ. First of all, we see Jesus' control. Jesus' control. Here they are. They've left 
the upstairs room where they had observed the, the Passover. Jesus has been teaching the disciples, perhaps as they've, as they've walked through the streets of Jerusalem, they've left the city now, they've gone down into the valley, the Kidron Valley, and they're ascending up the, the Mount of Olives, and they've gone into this little olive garden called Gethsemane, and there Jesus is going to pray. It's a, going to be a long, agonizing prayer the disciples are going to fall asleep. He's going to come and waken them and say, could you not watch with me? Watch and pray. And he goes and prays again, another agonizing prayer. And he comes back and the disciples are asleep. And then he goes and prays another agonizing prayer. And then he comes back and they're still asleep. And he says, awaken. Here comes my betrayer. And that brings us to verse 3. There seems to be a gap between verse 1 and verse 3 where that prayer, those agonizing prayers recorded in the other Gospels would take place. But now Judas arrives. Judas the disciple. Judas who had preached with Jesus and for Jesus. Judas who had worked miracles in the name of Jesus has become disgruntled and disappointed and disaffected, and is arranged to betray Jesus. And he arrives with a detachment of soldiers. The word's a, a formal word that's used of a certain number of soldiers. So it could have been up to 600 soldiers if they were all there, if it's being used formally. And even if it's not, there's probably a sizable number of Roman soldiers who are here. But along with the Roman soldiers, there are temple officials. So you've got Jewish officials, and we've got Roman soldiers coming. We're told that they're armed, and that they've got torches, lumps of wood on fire, and they've got lanterns. They're coming to hunt down a fugitive. They're coming to this olive garden. It's full moon, it's Passover, so in one way it's, it's a well-lit night, but it's in amongst the trees and in amongst the, the olive presses that are in this garden, and they're coming expecting Jesus to run, and they're coming with lanterns and torches to search for Him in the shadows of this olive grove. They will get Him. John records for us, look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Imagine the scene, this great number of men. Judas has briefed them. He has arranged a signal. He said, you know, you'll not recognize him, and in the dark it'll be hard to know him, but I know him. And he's the one that I go up to, and he's the one I greet. The one I greet with a kiss that was just we would, in our culture, we would shake hands. Judas has it all sorted out, all thought out, and the soldiers are all kitted up for this long search till they get him. And etched in John's memory is this majestic vision of a man striding out to face the hundreds of armed soldiers. And he says, who is it you want? What mastery, what control. Jesus knew all that was going to happen. He had told His disciples, I will be arrested. I will be betrayed. I will be handed over by the 
the chief priests and religious leaders, to the Roman authorities. He knew it all. But here he is, and his life is not being taken from him. His life is being laid down by him. And even though there's hundreds of soldiers, Jesus is in control. Even though Judas has an elaborate signal arranged, it's utterly unnecessary. Jesus is in control. And it's important to see this. Jesus is not a victim of injustice. He's not caught between political forces and crushed in the great millstones of life's forces. That's not the case. He has come on a mission, and He is dictating the terms. He is not hiding. He is taking charge. He is not reluctant. His obedience is not passive. He's not sitting there saying, well, if I'm going to be arrested, they'll have to get me. He's not sitting there saying, well, if I'm going to lay down my life, well, they'll have to come and lead me to it. Yes, Isaiah says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he wasn't rounded up like a sheep, was he? He walks out to them and he says, who is it you want? There's something majestic in it. There's something that speaks of control. He is the master of his fate. You know, when I was younger, I used to wonder why Jesus didn't escape. I used to wonder why he didn't answer better to the religious authorities and the high priest. I used to wonder why he didn't, why he didn't speak at all to Pilate, really, why he didn't answer Pilate's questions. They were easy, it seemed to me, to get out of. I could have got away. Why couldn't Jesus? Because he came for this moment. And John sees it in that question that's asked. Who is it you're looking for? And we should marvel at his willingness to lay down his life. He was led, but he volunteered to be led. Jesus' control. Secondly, Jesus' majesty, verse 5. Who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm He. It's me. Here I am. <laughs> Two words in Greek. He renders Judas' scheming superfluous, redundant, he renders his treachery ridiculous. Judas had said, the one I kiss, seize him, as if there's going to be a wrestling match and a tussle, and there Jesus will be leapt on by these hundreds of soldiers, and they will subdue him. And Jesus strides out majestically and says, it's me. Here I am. I am He. Think for a moment about Judas. What a tragic waste of a life. What a waste of what he had given himself to. He had given himself to, to set up Jesus, and it was pointless. Jesus didn't need set up, did he? And Judas, imagine when Jesus says, I am He. Judas going, what? What was all? Why did I go through all that angst for? 
and all the plotting and scheming. And then Jesus says to Judas in the other Gospels, He says, would you be to friend, He says, friend, would you betray me with a kiss? And then He says, do what you're going to do. This would come after Jesus has said, I am He. But what a commentary on anyone who stands with the world against Jesus. We're told that Jesus was standing with the crowd, with the soldiers. And again, John and his love for a deeper significance to think isn't just telling us about the geographical location of Judas. He's telling us about who he was aligning himself with. And here's a commentary on anyone who would align themselves against Jesus and with the world. What a complete waste. What a tragic missed opportunity. Let me apply this. You see, you can stand with Jesus and like the disciples be afraid. You can be weak and align yourself with Jesus. You can even foul up and fall and fall into terrible sin and let Jesus down like Peter did. But in standing with Jesus, Jesus will see will be our Savior. But if we align ourselves with the world, if we stand with the world, we've wasted it all, missed the opportunity. And I say to the young people, as you go to school, some of the older young people, and there's, there's pressure on you to stand with the world and not with Jesus, and not with Jesus' people, and not with Jesus' word and Jesus' values, as there's pressure on you to stand with other people against Jesus, remember Judas. And remember, what a waste. What a waste. What a pointless, pointless, meaningless action he engaged in. But there's more. There's more of Jesus in Jesus' majesty here. And John loves a rich, multi-layered significance to things. Whenever Jesus says those two Greek words, ego eimi, translated I am he, they're actually I, I am, is how they should be translated. I, I am. And they have a huge significance. And John wants us to get it. As you look at your Bibles, you'll see that he repeats those words three times. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back. He asked, they asked again, who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he. John is underlining for us these words so that we hear them because they are hugely significant. Whenever Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me? When God appeared in the burning bush, God said, tell them I am sent you. And throughout the Old Testament, God spoke to His people at different times, and He said that He was the I am. And in fact, the great name of God that was unpronounced in the Old Testament came from that moment where God said, tell them, I am is sending you. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, had quoted this in sayings and phrases when he said, I, I am the vine. 
I, I am the good shepherd. I, I am the light of the world. I, I am the resurrection. He was saying, I am the unchanging God, and I am the shepherd that you need, and I am the life that you need, and I am the light that you need, and I am the resurrection that you need. God is these things to you. And the Jews understood what he was saying because in John 8, 58, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, the Jewish religious leaders bent down and lifted stones to stone him for blasphemy. John hears in the garden a claim from Jesus to be God. And he records that at the sight of this commanding figure in front of them, not merely saying, well, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, but using the divine name and saying, I, I am, they were so struck, the people that came to arrest them, that they fell over. They drew back in astonishment, perhaps. They stumbled over each other. They were reduced to a sprawling mass. It wasn't Jesus that was struggling on the ground. It was them. And John sees in it something of a bitter parody of what should have happened. They should have been on their knees before him. The eternal God was in their midst. They should have been on their knees. But for John, it underlines the majesty of this one in the garden, your Savior, the one who is the I Am, who has no beginning and no end, but who stepped into time and history and had a birthday and who was going to have a death day. Why? So that you and I, who did have a beginning and who were very definitely going to have an ending, a terrible ending, would have a life that would never end. The majesty of Jesus. Oh, and doesn't it underline his voluntary submission? They're sprawled on the ground. They are arresters. And the one who would be arrested is standing unshackled. He could have turned in his heel and walked, but he stands and waits. Jesus' majesty. Let me make a, another application here. There, it underlines, too, the wickedness of the guards in per persisting in arresting him. They heard what he said. They were struck by it. And there's something, there's something terrible in what they go on to do. But we do the same. There are times when God puts a handbrake on in our sin, in our lives. And there are times when we override the handbrake and we persist in a sinful attitude or action. When God has slowed us down or stopped us or put a shot across our bows, and we need to see the mighty God in His majesty halting us, and we need to say thank you and fall on our knees rather than plowing on in our own way. Jesus' majesty. Thirdly, Jesus' substitution. Jesus' substitution, verses 7 and 8 and 9. Jesus asks again, who is it you're looking for? 
and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. They're very clear. They've come for him. And Jesus is very clear back. He says, I am he. Then he says, let these men go. Or more strictly, let these go. Let these go. These were the companions of a man who is being arrested for treason. They were his supporters and followers. What do you think the Roman soldiers would naturally do? Arrest them all. Crucify them all for treason. The Roman soldiers didn't care how many they crucified. They just they crucified hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. But Jesus cares for his flock. And it's an outrageous request. Here's the man about to be arrested, dictating the terms of his arrest. Take me and let them go. But Jesus cares for his flock. He cares for his people. And he had said, and it's recorded here, because it was said, this happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. He had said that in his prayer in John 17. And yes, it applies at a deep spiritual level that he wouldn't lose anyone who trusted in him. But what would have happened had these men been arrested? We don't know. But given their terror and fear, it might have been too much for them. They might have fallen away altogether, the pressure being so much. And Jesus knows their limits, and He knows our limits. He will not let us be tested beyond what we can bear, but will provide a way so that we can stand up under it. He will lead us not into testing or temptation that we can't bear. What a wonderful Savior. But that's not all there is here. There's something more something bigger to see, all that is about to happen. The arrest, the trial, the punishment. Although it's taking place geographically at Jerusalem, although it's taking place on earth, although it's utterly unjust, we need to see all of it also happening at a higher level. Jesus is standing not simply before judges on earth, but before the judge of all the earth in the court of heaven. And Jesus is being found guilty not merely on earth, but particularly in heaven. And His punishment is not merely a crucifixion on earth, but it is a pouring out of the wrath of the triune God on His soul. And we need to understand that what John is teaching us here and showing us in the next chapters takes place on two stages. There is the drama on earth, but the real drama, the real action, as it were, is in the court of heaven. And even here in the arrest, there is a significance. So that, there's a significance. That's why Jesus is silent to the ridiculous accusations of the high priests because there is a court in which he stands, in which the accusations are not ridiculous, are not unfounded. In the court of heaven, Jesus is going to be found guilty. But here we're not at that stage yet. We're before that. But Jesus, in his words here on earth, echoes something 
that is true in the great drama of redemption in heaven. And he is conscious of that drama. And what he says to the temple officials, let these men go or let these go, is what he says to the judge of all the earth for his disciples, for you and me. And I think John has been pondering this for 50 years. Let these men go. John owed his physical life most likely to those words. He had been a young man. I, in my mind's eye, I see the disciples seized. Certainly, Mark, it would seem, was seized because he records about someone who was there who, when he was seized, did a runner and left his, his garments behind him. I see these men being seized at this point, and John, perhaps fearful that he was going to be crucified too, and Jesus says, let these go. But he's been thinking about it for 50 years, and he says, I want my readers to hear those words because those words have a significance for them too. Let these go. Christian, you're Christian this morning. Stand in the court of heaven. And hear your Savior say to the judge, let these go. Let this one go. I am the one you're looking for. Let her go. Let him go. If you're not a Christian this morning, what a thing that you could hear. Jesus saying, let them go. Let them go. You come to him today and ask him to be your Savior, you will hear him say, let this one go too. Jesus' substitution. And then lastly, Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' willing sacrifice, verses 10 and 11. Rash Peter. They've let go of him. And he, he pulls out a sword. Maybe it's up his sleeve. Maybe it's in the folds of his garments. He pulls out a short a sword and he lunges at one of them. And he swings it wildly at the man's head and he cleaves off his ear. Peter has missed the point of verse 6. He's been caught up in his own boasting that although others might let Jesus down and run away, Peter wouldn't. He would lay down his life for Jesus. And Peter has missed the point of verse 6 that Jesus is the one who will lay down his life willingly. And there's a a lesson for us here. When we try to do Christ's work our way, perhaps with family or friends, and we get frustrated and we push the gospel at them as if by the force of our words, we might convince them. Yes, we're to share the gospel and we're to be winsome in how we do it. And sometimes we might need to be direct with people. Sometimes, not often, not as often as we think. And sometimes we get frustrated And Jesus would say to us here, put away your sword. Sometimes we want to lash out for Christ's standards or the standards of God's Word. And Jesus says to us, put away your sword. Don't do my work your way. But there's a deeper lesson here. As always with John, Christ's words reveal his willingness to lay down his life. Somewhere between verses 1 and 3, 
Jesus had been in the most intense of agonies. He had been pleading, Father, all things are possible. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup be taken from me. What is this cup he's talking about? Well, the cup was Old Testament picture language. Old Testament picture language of the wrath of God. In Jeremiah 25 and 15, we read these words. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This is the cup of the fury of the Lord. Isaiah mentions it in Isaiah 51, 17. Well, look it up yourselves. We'll not take time to read it, but death and hell are in the cup. Every drop is charged with the damnation that the sinner deserves. But what did John hear Jesus say? Oh, he had heard Jesus say, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Let Yet nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And now he hears Jesus say, Shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father is giving to me? Death and hell are in the cup. Shall I not drink it? Holy fury from the judge of all the earth is in that cup. Shall I not drink it? That sense of forsaken by his beloved Father that he had known for forever and forever is in the cup. And yet John hears his Savior say, Shall I not drink it? The foulness of death, the pains and the agonies of the punishment that John deserved and that I deserved and that you deserved were in that cup. But John emblazoned on his memory was this little phrase from his Savior's lips, shall I not drink the cup? Put the sword away. I am drinking this cup that is being handed to me, even though it's being handed to me by my beloved Father's hand. I will drink it for you, John. I will drink it for my disciples. I will drink it for those sitting in a church hall in Letterkenny, in 2020. Shall I not drink it? Jesus' sacrifice. Is it not glorious to let these words be emblazoned on our minds as they were emblazoned on John's memory? They speak into our lives. They speak into our uncertainty see Jesus in control of not just this event, but all events for His people. They speak into our fear, see His tender care for the disciples, let them go. They speak into our uncertainty about our salvation, let these go. They speak into our 
concerns about, are all my sins paid for? Shall I not drink the cup? That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the cup has been drained to the very last dregs. And they speak these words, don't they, into our commitment. When we hear our Savior doing all of this for us, doesn't it stir us in the hearts, the very depths of our being, to say, what can I do for Him? Do these words speak into our need to love our Savior more? And we wonder, how can we love our Savior more? Do we just try? Oh, I must love Him more. I'll, I'll try and love Him more. No, no, go and look at Him here. Look at Him here in Gethsemane and hear these words that 50 years later still ring in the ears of John and let them ring in your ears and mine. Who is it you want? His control. I am He, His Majesty. Let these go, His substitution. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me, His sacrifice? Amen. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. O Father in heaven, when you said to Moses, I am, you said to Moses, take off your sandals for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And surely where we have been standing this morning is holy ground, the holiest of ground, almost, almost. And O oh Lord God, we have heard our Savior speak to us about His sovereign control of everything. We have heard Him speak of His willingness to die in our place. We have heard Him speak, despite the anguish that caused tears to stream down His face, we have heard Him speak of His willingness to take the cup of my hell and our hell to His lips and to drain it. And so help us, Lord God, as we seek to live for Him and to serve Him and to put all that we've heard this morning into practice and help us to trust Him and to love Him and to live for Him, to have confidence in Him and His ways and in His care. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.